All right, you can have a seat. Well, good morning and happy new year too. Because some of you still have your Christmas decorations up. About halfway through, the sad hours up. But, I mean, all that's still true, right? I mean, just take the ribbons off and we're good to go. Um, but we are glad that you're here uh, and welcome. My name is Hank Atchison. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Safe Haven. Um, so the book of James. Uh, before I, I kind of jump into this intro, um, I want to just remind you, and many of you probably know this, uh, so just come in way of reminder, and some of you maybe, uh, it, it might be the first time you've heard this, um, but we preach verse by verse through, through books of the Bible um, with, with great purpose and intent. We do believe that a systematic study of scriptures is the way that God has designed them um, to be taught and to be studied and to be understood. Now, I hope that doesn't scare you off. Um, that just simply means that when we teach the Bible and when we open the Bible, we think there's a lot of really critical things that matter. Um, the context matters. Who the author is writing to matters. Um, who the author is matters. Um, the history around it matters. All of those things come into play whenever you teach verse by verse through books of the Bible. Now, occasionally we will teach um, thematically where we'll come in and you know, have, have just a topic and, and address that topic. And there's, we're not saying there's anything wrong with that. But the majority of what we do here at Safe Haven is teach verse by verse through books of the Bible and, and give what we believe in, and is our conviction is the whole counsel of, of God. Now, if I came in here every week and I just said, Holy Spirit, guide me in what to say, and I just opened the Bible and just started preaching, again, I'm not necessarily bashing that, but I don't think that you can get the substance um, and the foundation that we all need um, from the Word of God without teaching the Bible in, in, in this way. And so, my hope is not that you just have some really positive, happy experience in this hour. Our hope is that through the living, breathing, active, powerful Word of God, that you hear something in this hour that changes your life. Um, and, and so, this is a very important hour, but it, it's not the most important hour. And so, we're not gathering here and putting all our chips in the basket of how the Sunday morning service goes and if we can pull it off or not. Um, our hope this morning is that by God's grace, through His power and through His presence, through His Spirit and through His Word, that our lives are, are changed. And, and that ultimately is James' heart. Um, he wants to see fruit. He believes that that's what Jesus um, taught was that through a genuine faith in Him, that there is a fruit, I'm sorry, there is fruit, there's a life that's different, there's a life that's changed. Now, James, I'm going to give you two extremes because um, there's probably both extremes in this room and maybe a lot of you in the middle. There's two extremes to the book of James as far as the approach. There's some in this camp over here who love the book of James. In, in, in this camp, and again, this is an extreme, so if you love James, I'm not saying that you are a legalist, okay, or some, you know, fundamentalist. But I am saying in the extreme side of this camp are people who are banking on their own righteousness. They're banking on their own work, their own effort, their own attendance, their own giving, their own prayer, their own understanding of the Bible. They, their salvation and their justification before God, how they're made right with God is in their mind heavily dependent on their performance and what they do or what they don't do. And so they take this 
epistle of James, the letter of James, and, and, and they would say, well, see, this is exactly what we're talking about because we love the book of James because he says faith without works is dead, and we know that all of our work means something towards our salvation. So they would take this and, and love it and love it in, in kind of a weird, twisted way in that they love it because it helps them beat their own chest and talk about all those other people who just don't get it like they get it and don't do things the way that they do things, all those other folks outside the walls. Okay, then there's this other extreme that uh, this group that and I know hates a strong word, uh, but but really are heavily critical toward the letter of James, and it's in this far camp of uh, and, and this may be a, a weird word for you, but this antinomian this and what that means is this camp of people who think that grace covers it, and so I can basically live the way that I want to live. Now I don't know very many people that think that way. I'm just going to be honest with you. But, but there is this tendency in, in context in churches where they're grace-heavy. A lot of Reformed churches might be uh, classified as grace-heavy. And so sometimes the mindset can be because of the grace of God and because I'm fully dependent on the work of God and the work of Jesus, I can essentially live and do whatever I want to do. I can say things, or maybe it's not consistent. Maybe it's just in some of those moments that I think James is speaking to more than any other moments, some of those day-to-day moments where we just sort of go, it doesn't really matter how I respond here. I can be a jerk. I can say this. I can think this way because there's grace. And so traditionally, people who um, have been, and I'm going to use this phrase loosely, but the grace junkies, have approached James a little bit skeptical because they seem it contradicts the salvation and the teaching of Paul, whose justification um, through grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But can I just tell you just up front, they're not at odds. Um, The question that James is dealing with is not this one. It's not how... That's the question Paul's dealing with. One thing you're going to notice about James versus Paul is, is, is Paul feels the need, and he's, he's inspired by the Spirit, but he explains everything. And so he's going to say something, and then he's going to spend three or four chapters expounding on what he just said to where James is going to pin us to the wall and walk off and go to the next thing. James would have been incredible on Twitter. Because he could just sum it up and just bam, and you walk away going, I'm really not, I understand what he's saying, but I don't really like it that much. But the question that James is dealing with is not how you are saved. He's not dealing with justification. The question that James is dealing with is the genuineness of your profession. Essentially, the question is, what does it look like to have experienced this grace. And I think personally James gets a bad rap. Because there's just a couple of verses in James. And um, we'll see them in chapter 2. That, that you know, really get some bad press as far as faith without works is dead. And that's the ones that are heavily attacked. But I, I just want to challenge you to... I mean we just went through the Gospel of John. John's very black and white. But more specifically in 1st, 2nd and 3rd John. 1st John is... Is there sin in your life? If there's consistent sin in your life, you need to check something. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. First and second Peter is the same way. I mean, Peter is constantly pushing the believers 
to test the authenticity and the genuineness of their faith. And the measure always is, is their fruit. Where did they get this from? Where did James, the half-brother of Jesus, the writer of this letter, where did Peter, where did John, where did they get this thinking about a tree and its fruit? Where did they begin to think this way about, if it doesn't really matter what you profess about Christ, that does mean something, but then there's this big picture, there's more of a comprehensive understanding of salvation and its authenticity, and it's the way that it's lived out. Where did they get that teaching? Somebody say it. Jesus. Jesus. I don't know if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, but I challenge you. Read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthews 5, 6, and 7. Matthew. Did I say Matthews? I probably say Walmarts and Sonics. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And read the, the letter of James. And you'll see the undertone is Christ's teaching. There are very few things, if any, that James says that Jesus didn't say. And so again, I, I mean... If, if you are really critical toward James, I want to challenge you that it's not just James that you should critique. It's John and it's Peter and ultimately it's Jesus. Because there's something to the life that's on the other side of being resurrected. There, there, there's something to, to be said to the genuineness and the authenticity of what an individual says has happened to them through the grace of God, by the power of God, and how they live their life and how it's different. It's not perfect, and that's not what you're going to see here. But there's a marked difference from the world. Not only is this not a, a foreign thought scripturally, even Old Testament too, I don't have time to go into all of it, but guys, we understand this. Anything that has any intrinsic value is subject to what? Being tested. Diamonds. Money. I mean, if you get a new job, some of you might be starting a new job tomorrow. Guess what? You're not going to start that job. And they, whether they tell you or not, you, you're on probation. And again, I, I'm not, and, and James isn't either. He's not, the question is not, how are you saved? The question is, on the of that profession. And so the goal of James is to convince his audience that their religion, their religious profession, and their religious activities will not benefit them unless they manifest this true godliness from the heart. Now, here's where I think we might can get a little bit confused. Is that James's context, and we'll talk about the timing and all of it in just a second, but his context is mainly to Jewish Christians. I mean, I'd say 99.9% .9 he's writing to Jewish Christians. And so their background, if you're familiar with Judaism, is heavily works-based. Like what they've been taught their entire lives and what their forefathers and great-great everybody has told them is that it's, this, it's your adherence to the law, it's your observance of the feast and, and, and the sacrifices and all of those things. And so he's, he's really pastoring this group of people in a very unique time as they transition out of this works-based mindset into what it means to live in light of the grace of God shown through Jesus Christ. And so, on the outside, it might look like they're doing things right. As far as from a religious standpoint. And so, th that's what I mean by the confusion. Like, don't, like he's writing to people 
that some of them yeah, probably have, have you know, kind of thought less and less about the temple and observances in the temple because of Jesus. Some of them maybe don't care as much about the law because of Jesus. But there's a lot of them that still are heavily influenced by the Jewish law. And, and maybe rightfully so, but also the observances in the temple and um, attending the temple activities. And so I think a lot of his emphasis is on, like in this context of, hey, you're doing church stuff. Let me just kind of shift it into our culture. Hey, you're doing church things. You're attending services. You're uh, posting Bible verses. You're doing things that most Christians should do. But where Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and where James will point us as well is to the heart behind that. Like, how are you treating your spouse? Like, what about your kids? Like, what about that person that just drives you bananas? I mean, that's what he's after. Not just this adherence to religious stuff. But what's your heart? What's your motive? And so, that was Jesus' concern. That's James' concern. And and, and one last thing before we jump in to answer some questions. This concern from James is not just a concern about how things look on the outside. Again, I think we can get confused, especially some of you that grew up in church and your parents had you in church every time the doors were open and you in here and you, know, you, you, you were forced to do Awana, which Awana is awesome. But you, I mean, you got all the stars, you got the vest, it's probably your mom's got it in a plaque and a frame and you know, all of that. Like, like, some of you might just be a little bit confused and go, is, isn't, isn't James just after the same thing I felt like my parents were after and that's just that, that I look a certain way? No. James is a pastor writing to people who are going through great suffering and tribulation and his concern is not just how they look or how they act. His ultimate concern is with their soul. That's what he's concerned with. And so he loves them enough and is confident enough and bold enough to look them in the eyes and say, hey, you profess this belief in Jesus, but your life does not match that. And I'm concerned. And I'm not just concerned because I want you to do certain things or walk a certain way or talk a certain way. I'm concerned for what it might say about your soul. Your eternity. I mean, how heart-wrenching would it be? I mean, think of this. I vividly remember when I was at Galleon Baptist Church preaching through the Sermon on the Mount and we got to the point, we got to that moment um, in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. And when, I don't know what it was, but when those words came out of my mouth that morning and I looked up, this, this absolute overwhelm fell on me. And I admit, it wasn't at first and foremost for all the people. It was for me. I'm like, whoa, whoa. And in my study, it didn't come. It, it, it came standing in front of the couple hundred people and going, And reading it and then being like, I don't even know where to go from here. But this overwhelming burden, and it was a fear, it was an anxiety of the reality that there are people that we rub shoulders with every Sunday. Some of you in this room right now may think that you're a Christian and you're not. I don't say that like it makes me happy to say that. And I don't beat my chest and say, well, if you were like me, you'd be okay. Please don't misunderstand. That's not what James is saying. It's a concern for the soul. And if we're not humble enough, if we're not humble enough to test our faith and its authenticity and its genuineness with the fruit that's in our life, 
then that might be the first clue that something's wrong. I'm not saying you're not saved. But I'm saying that could be the very thing that the Lord is working in your heart. And that is humility. Because none of us like to be evaluated, right? I mean, from the doctors evaluating you to your boss evaluating you, nobody wants to be evaluated. But it's necessary. So don't be confused. This is a concern for the soul, not just appearance. Now, there's some key questions that we always ask when we approach Scripture. And these are going to, some of you, I think it's necessary to launch us into um, over seven or eight months of, of teaching in this book. But there's some questions. When, why, and who? Okay? And I want to start with when. Some of you, again, like just hang in here. 45 to 50 AD is when this was written. Now, that doesn't... It may not seem like it matters much, but when you're trying to figure out who exactly it is that wrote this, because there's four James in the New Testament. Two of them are, are just absolutely too obscure to even be candidates to write this. But there's two that are a pretty heavily, a heavy possibility. The first one is James the Apostle. He was James, one of the disciples. Now, the reason that this time frame matters is James the disciple died before this was written. So would we agree that that eliminates James the Apostle? Y'all with me? Yes. And there's this James, this half-brother of Jesus, as we'll see in just a second, who I believe is the writer of this letter. Now, here, here's why I think the when matters even more than just the specific date. You keep in mind that the gospel had not yet been taken to the Gentiles nationally. So this is, Christ is resurrected. All the believers, about 120 or so, have gathered in this upper room in Jerusalem... The Holy Spirit falls on them in Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches that great sermon at Pentecost. And that's the one that we keep trying to replicate, right? <laughs> over and over and over again. Every time. Anyway, another soapbox. Alright, so he preaches the sermon at Pentecost. Thousands are saved. The New Testament church is launched. And so it, this is about 45 years after that. And it's still primarily Jewish Christians. Still primarily Jewish Christians. The Gentiles have not yet been reached nationally. In fact, the, the Gentiles will get the gospel through the dispersion of the Jewish Christians. Now, I mean, when we sit back and think about plans to evangelize and church planting, rarely do we take into, into consideration that the way that the New Testament church launched was through what? Suffering. Through persecution. And so... The church at this time was largely made up of Hebrews that had received Christ as the Messiah. Now, again, I just want you to know who he's writing to. He's not writing to North Americans. Okay? Now, this is God's word. Right? And I do think you can take more than just principle from this. I do think there's personal application for the main reason is that we are all human beings who are in the same desperate need of Jesus and have the same eternal death if we don't um, receive Christ. Okay, so, so just because he wrote to the Jews doesn't mean that we just write it off and just push it aside and we just ignore it. But it's important, again, to understand that it's a Jewish man. I think there's three, at least three. Some of you may have more, and there probably are more, but I think three main reasons that he writes this letter. And the first one is this, to confront corrupt faith. I mean, that's what he, he wants to expose. Again, like I said, he's going to say things that are going to make us go, golly, kind of makes me feel a little weird, angry, a little, little confrontational there, James. Well, that's what he's doing. I mean, he, he, in grace and in compassion, 
He's confronting a corrupt faith. Again, it's not just to get a certain product. It's concern for their soul. Okay, he's not just wanting their church to look healthy to the community. He's concerned with their soul. And we have to be careful of that. As we think about how we approached one another when we're in sin and how we handle different things, it can't just be, especially from the leadership on down, it can't just be because we want to look a certain way or be a certain way to the community or whatever. It has to be come from a deep concern for souls. So he confronts a corrupt faith. Second, to say it in the positive, to present the genuine faith. You'll see James's heart is, is that a faith in Christ that is revealed for the world to see. Again, these aren't faults that James comes up with on his own. Jesus said, let your light shine. What? Y'all finish it. Before men so that they see your good deeds and glorify who? You and your church? Your Father in heaven. So James has a passion to see the church live out their faith so that the world can see it. Jesus even said in John 13 to his disciples, by the way you love one another, it's by this that the world will know that you are my disciples. And so possibly the greatest evangelistic tool we have to the world is the way we love each other. I would not think or say that that is the greatest evangelistic tool in 2018. I don't think the world's out there going, man, those Christians love each other. I just don't. And so, third, first to confront corrupt faith, second to present genuine faith, third um, to encourage them to persevere with joy. Again, the context matters. You could take some of these verses and, and build your own little sermon around it or your thoughts around it, but third might be the first reason that he writes this is to encourage these believers to persevere with joy. They are suffering. They are going through tremendous trials. They have been displaced from their homes. They have been displaced from family. Not only have, are the Orthodox Jews, like, like the, the traditional Jews, um, ostracizing them because they don't follow Judaism anymore, but also just the Gentile world because they profess Jesus Christ. I mean, they just have encouraged them. There's a, a, there's a word that's a simple word, if you want to look down in verse 1, chapter 1. It says, James, a servant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. And then what does it say? Greetings. Usually that Greek word is translated greetings or hello. But 60 times in the New Testament that Greek word is translated be glad, rejoice. Which next week you'll see that's really going to mean something because... He wants them to understand that the trials that they're going through, the tribulations that they're going through, God is not removed from that. I mean, God is not out here trying to figure out how to help you in your trials. God is actually with you in the fire. God is with you in the trial. And He's working something. And the way that your faith is proven genuine is how you press into Him during the trial, during the suffering, during the tribulation. And so he wants to encourage these that have been dispersed. So that's the why. When, why, who. I've already mentioned that there are four possibilities, so I'm not going to say that again. But James, um, the letter of James was written, and and again, some would disagree with this, but vast majority, I mean the vast majority, literally like 99% of scholars believe that James, the half-brother of Jesus, is the one who wrote this. 
Um, and, and there's some you know, process of elimination comes into play. And then there's just some of the content as well that would point more towards um, James, the half-brother of Jesus, writing this. But James, he was a humble man. He's a man of strong conviction. We're going to see that. He's fearless. He's unapologetic. He's to the point. He's compassionate to the poor. And he's a server of Christ and a lover of Christ. But he has not always professed Jesus as his Lord. He, did you notice in verse 1, James... Here's how he introduces himself, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That Greek word servant is bondservant, the lowest form of a slave. And so he, this is salvation. Okay, even though he doesn't say, I've placed my faith and trust in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, ask him to come to my heart, sign the card, check the box, got baptized, all of that. Even though he doesn't say that, he's saying that. This is true salvation. Jesus is my master and I'm his slave, not just for my salvation, but in my life. Like, like, he's my master tomorrow, too, not just my master when I gather on Sunday. And so, but he didn't always hold this. John chapter 7, verse 5. For not even his own brothers believed in him. James grew up with Jesus. Then, I don't know what they did, but he played outside with Jesus he watched his behavior he watched his actions and you would think surely 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 there would be something about Jesus that would catch his eye that would make him think there's something special about him but for whatever reason that did not happen I mean Jesus himself said a prophet is without honor in his hometown then it must be infinitely worse in your home because even his own brothers did not believe in him James did not believe in his brother his half-brother when he was crucified, James did not believe in his half-brother. Let's back up a little bit. When he was performing the miracles, James did not believe in his half-brother when he was placed in a tomb. James was an unbeliever. But then in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, watch what happens. Paul's in, in, in 15, if you're familiar with it, it's really the chapter of the resurrection. I mean, he's talking about Jesus appearing to all these people. And he's just mentioned that he's appeared to 500 now watch this. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. I firmly believe that this is the conversion moment. Jesus went to his brother. James got a personal encounter with the living God. Now I don't know if Jesus went up to him and was like, like a normal brother. I tried to tell you. He just wouldn't listen. I don't know how it was. I don't know how it went down. And we don't get a lot of details. But Jesus himself, the God of the universe, encounters James. And it's clear after that moment that James is a sold out follower of Jesus. Not only was he born again but James was also a servant I mean again like his humility I, I think is shown in this first verse James now I don't know about you but if you were Jesus half brother would you would you mention that I mean maybe probably at times when you didn't really have to just because you have some sort of identification with Christ that other people don't have but he simply just says James and I'm here's how I relate to Jesus now I'm his servant I'm his slave he doesn't say, James, you know, I'm the half-brother of Jesus, you know. I mean, I mean you, you guys know that, right? I'm, I'm this. He doesn't do that. He just says, I'm James, and I'm a servant 
He's a bond slave. Not only was James humble in how he identified himself as a servant, but he also mentions his name in a way um, that it would be understood that everybody knew who he was. Because he doesn't give any description. I think it's important for us to know as well that this James was the leader. Now, he was not an apostle. He was not a disciple. He was not sent out. But throughout the book of Acts, you see James, the half-brother of Jesus, addressing the elders, um, uh, the council of elders, as the leader. But he doesn't say, this is Dr. James, senior pastor of First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. I'm... I'm not assuming they're Baptists. I just threw that out there. But he doesn't. He just, he just says this is, this is who he is. It's James. James led the way in reaching the Gentiles and leading the church when it was in a significant time of transition. James was very well respected. James was looked up to. Um, you might have heard him called James the Just. Some of you might have called him James the Goody Two-Shoes. But his reputation preceded him, and he was a man that was very well respected. He was very compassionate. I think it shows itself in in this letter, in that he's addressing and confronting things that most people would not address and confront out of fear. But because of his love and compassion for their soul, he confronts some very difficult topics. We'll also see through this book, not only is he compassionate about their soul, but he's very compassionate about how the poor are treated. His strong convictions about the poor... James also doesn't at all, at any level, accept anyone showing partiality. He won't put up with it, and he will expose it. Tradition tells us that, which speaks to his courage, that he died as a martyr. Not for his brother, but for his Lord. So James is... From what we can tell and what we gather is an incredible man. And he's a pastor writing to his church. He's a pastor writing to people that he loves and that he cares about. He's a pastor that's willing to confront things that need to be confronted and say things that may not be welcomed or may not be liked. He's willing to speak the truth in the midst of suffering and trial and sin. And doesn't seem overly concerned with the response that he gets from those who read the letter. He doesn't go out of his way to try to explain himself. He just simply presents the truth. And it seems that he trusts God, trusts the Spirit to work from there. One of the critiques that James gets is that he does not mention, and he doesn't much. um, He does not mention the cross of Christ. He does not mention the resurrection of Jesus. And so some would critique and say, well, I mean, any Jew could have written this. I mean, you're you're assuming that James is even a Christian. And and, and my hope in this point um, in the message is to exalt Christ, not James. Because I believe there's three clear places that James exalts Jesus. And the first place is in verse 1. And it might be a little obscure. But did you notice that he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you're a bond servant... Do you have two masters or one? One master. So if you're this lowest form of slave, which is what he's saying, that's what he's saying. If you're the lowest form, how can you be a servant of God and a servant of Jesus? Unless he had a full understanding 
that Jesus is God. Like there's no distinction in James' mind between Yahweh and Jesus. I think he emphasizes the deity of Christ in the very first verse. That Jesus is not just his half-brother. Jesus is not just um, this, this other deity. That Jesus is the one true God. Secondly, I think you see a similar thing in chapter 2 verse 1. He says, my brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this, and it's just obscure. The Lord of glory. He doesn't just say Jesus. He says the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say the Lord of glory. Again, in the Jewish context, what is he saying? He's saying this is Jehovah. This is Yahweh. This is the God. Jesus is the God of Isaiah chapter 6. When the train of his robe filled the temple and and the angels were saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And when Isaiah saw him, he was a man that was broken and recognized his sinfulness and needed a pardon from this God or he would be doomed. And he got the pardon. I mean, the Lord of glory in the Jewish mind is the creator, the strong one, Elohim. It's not just some man that's just a step above humanity. This is God. This is the God of glory. And then in chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, I think he puts a heavy emphasis on Christ as he implores believers. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the earthly, I'm, I'm sorry, it, it receives the early and the later in, in the late rains. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. He knew return, and that was his hope. How were these people to remain steadfast? How were they able to endure through these trials? How are they going to put one foot in front of the other with this hope and knowing that we are not orphaned anymore, that we have a Father, and He's coming. He's coming for us. Again, his encouragement to the believers is that Jesus came and lived the life that they could not live, died the death that we deserve, was buried, resurrected, and ascended, and he's coming again. Like that was his hope. In church, there's, look, I'm looking around in, in your faces, and I know there's stories, and I know there's trials, and I know there's tribulations, and I know there's confusion, and I know there's sin, and I know there's things that are happening in all of our lives right now, and we're trying to figure out, like, where do we go? Like, what do we do? What, like, how do I even process this? Listen. Listen. Listen to what James says. God is not absent from you. He's not removed from your struggle. He's king of your struggle. He's the Lord of your suffering. And He loves you. And He's shown that primarily through Jesus. And for James, the hope for the Christian church that's struggling is that He's coming. Because that should automatically take our minds to a place, oh, this is not my home. This isn't my hope. There's tremendous grace that we experience here and there's good times and there's fun times, but you know what? It ends. How many of you are super bummed Christmas is over? Me. Like I hate when Christmas is over, but it is. It's a grace because it's a constant reminder that this is temporary. 
Like our lives are a constant reminder that this is temporary. I mean, just even transitioning from one day to the next, uh, let's back from one second to the next, from one minute to the next, from one hour to the next, from one day to the next, from one week, from one month, from one uh, year. It's a constant reminder that this comes to an end. Then what? That's where James wants us to think. That's where James wants us to look, to know that for those who place their faith in Christ, Jesus is not just there at the end of it all. He's right here with you walking through it all. And so James takes his first shot at this scattered, persecuted flock. And I think the the point and, and what he's concerned with for the sake of their soul is the genuineness of their faith. And so this letter will be, it's going to consist of tests, challenges for them and also for us. So Joseph, you guys can come back. Um, and so we'll close our time this morning um, with, with communion. And I want us to maybe approach it a little bit differently because I think James sort of lends itself to, um, I know it does, this, this heart evaluation. And, and guys, communion is that. Um, yes, communion, when, when we take the elements, is about remembering what Jesus did. It, yes, 100%. Like what the, what the juice represents, what the bread represents is His blood and His body and the hope that you've placed in that. But scripturally, communion is a time of evaluation. It's a time to reflect. It's a time to repent. Guys, repentance is not something you should run from. By God's grace through Christ, when there's sin in your life, you don't have to run from Him. If you're a believer in Jesus, He took it. And He doesn't just take them one at a time. He took it all. Like before you committed that any of your sin, He paid the price for it. The shame and the guilt and the punishment and the condemnation that your sin deserved took, was, was placed on the curse for us so that we might become His righteousness. So if you're a believer today and there's sin in your life, don't run from Him. Run to Him. Repentance is a grace. So before we take communion this morning, believer, reflect your life. Ask God to speak to your heart through this letter of James then quite honestly, he's going to be, I mean, you're going to feel like you've been in here with Mike Tyson some Sundays. But that's good. It's grace. It's a concern for our soul. And so, believer, before you take communion this morning, I just ask that you would just sit in your seat, just bow your head, or get on your knees, or stand up, however you want to pray. Open your eyes and look to that. I mean, whatever you want to do, but just reflect. Don't run from him. If there's sin... Confess it, repent, and joyfully, with a heart of gratitude and worship, walk back to that table and take that juice and take that bread and say, thank you, Jesus, for your blood that cleanses me. Thank you for your body that was broken for me. And worship him through that. But if you're not a believer this morning, um, I know I say this a lot, but I want this to stick. This is one of those things I want to stick. We have something greater to offer you than communion, and it's Christ. Don't think you're going to go back there and get Jesus. You're just going to get some grape juice and a cracker. 
if the Lord is working in your heart, drawing it, you feel something happening. It's like everywhere you go, everywhere you look, you just been like you turn on the radio, it's Jesus. You you get a text message, it's Jesus. You get on social media, it's Jesus. Like every you seems like it seems like everywhere is pointing to Jesus. Would you just recognize that God could be drawing you to Himself? And it's a grace that you are sitting here this morning. You're sitting here this morning and you have an opportunity to surrender your heart and life to Jesus. Starting 2018 off the right way. Would you do that? Would you surrender your life to Christ? And I mean, I can't do that for you. I'd be glad to pray with you and talk you through that. But that's not something that I can do for you. You don't need me to intercede between you and God. Jesus has done that. So I just want to point you to Him. And if you're weary, if you're heavy laden, go to Him. If you think your sin is too much, you need to hear what Scripture teaches, that where your sin is, there's more grace. There's just more. You can tell me, you can write it down if you want to. You can log it, you can store it on, you can write all the sins you want to write down. But I promise you, you'll never go beyond the grace of God. You won't. So let's just worship. For some of you, it might be surrender, it might be salvation. But believer, evaluate, reflect joyfully with grateful hearts. Partake in communion. Let's pray.